Imagine for a moment that you're in a desperate situation. Maybe you don't have to imagine it. Maybe you are in a desperate situation at the moment. But if you're not, just imagine it. Something deadly serious is going on in your life. And now ask yourself, what is the best thing Jesus could do for me in that situation? Now probably we would all say the best thing Jesus could do would be to fix the situation. He could do what I ask of him. When I ask him to take away the threat I'm facing or give me the opening that I need to get out of my bad situation, the best thing Jesus could do would be to fix my problem. For most of us, that is the obvious answer. But what if there was something even better Jesus could do? What if he taught us that we could trust him, that his word is totally reliable even when he doesn't seem to be fixing our problems. Returning back this morning to John's Gospel. And as we turn to John's Gospel, we're going to meet a man who thought the best thing Jesus could do for him was to heal his son. But we're going to see Jesus does something even better for this man and for his family. We're going to read from John chapter 4, verse 43. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1067, or in the larger print Bibles, 1654. But just before we read, let me remind you what we've seen recently in John's Gospel. In chapter 2, Jesus attended a wedding at a place called Cana in the region of Galilee. And the bridegroom at that wedding faced an embarrassing situation. He had run out of wine for his guests. And in this culture, once that became known, the bridegroom would be humiliated. He was someone who had failed to provide properly for his guests. But before the lack of wine became known, Jesus stepped in at the wedding And he miraculously provided more wine. And not just any old wine. The head waiter had a sip of the wine and declared it to be the best wine. The bridegroom didn't have to face any outraged guests. He did not start his married life in humiliation. And after that, John told us in chapter 2, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Throughout his account of Jesus' life, John highlights seven signs, seven incidents, and each one reveals some aspect of Jesus' glory. The miraculous wine at the wedding was the first of those signs, and it showed that Jesus provides the best. No one can outgive Jesus. Well, after that wedding in the north of Israel and Galilee, Jesus went south to the city of Jerusalem in the region of Judea, 
And in Jerusalem, he did other impressive things. Signs that John doesn't go into detail about. Then after a while, Jesus decided to go north to Galilee again. And in the first part of chapter 4, we saw how on the way, he stopped off for two days in Samaria. And many of the Samaritan people came to recognize him as the savior of the world. That's where we left things last time we looked at John's gospel. And now John is going to tell us about the second sign through which Jesus revealed his glory. We're going to pick up at chapter 4, verse 43, and we'll read to the end of the chapter in verse 54. After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son. He was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. And the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. This is God's Word. And it divides into two sections. The first section shows us a desperate father looking for a display of Jesus' power. But before the father appears on the scene, we have some verses that are a bit of a puzzle. If we pay attention to them, they seem confusing. The beginning of chapter 4 told us Jesus decided to travel back to Galilee in the north of Israel. Then we heard how he broke off his journey north to spend two days with the Samaritans. And now verse 43 says, after those two days, he left for Galilee. That's straightforward. But then verse 44 says, if you have a look at it, Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Galilee is Jesus' home country. He was born in Bethlehem in the south, but he grew up in Galilee, in the town of Nazareth. We might ask, so what? Well, a better way to translate the start of verse 44 would be, 
for Jesus had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. If you put verses 43 and 44 together, they are telling us Jesus is heading to Galilee because he has no honor there. Why would he do that? Why not stay where people do honor him? Why not stay among the Samaritans? They were big on him. But no, Jesus chooses to go where he is not honored because, as we'll see, he has someone to meet there. Jesus is the kind of Savior who goes where he is not honored in order to bring life. Very good, but just as we think we've sorted out what's going on here, verse 45 seems to contradict what we've just seen. Verse 45 says, When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So was Jesus wrong? Does he have honor in Galilee after all? Not really. Back in chapter 2, we heard that Jesus did signs during the Passover festival in Jerusalem. He did miracles. And when they saw those miracles, we were told many people believed in Jesus. We were also told Jesus didn't believe in them. Their belief in Jesus was superficial belief. They were impressed by the miracles Jesus did, but it didn't go any further than that. If the miracles stopped, their belief in Jesus would stop as well. Jesus knew their belief was superficial, and he didn't put any confidence in it. So here in verse 45, when we're told many of the people in Galilee had been at the Passover in Jerusalem, we know what kind of welcome they're giving Jesus. They're not truly honoring him as the Son of God, as the introduction to John's gospel did. They're not honoring him as the Savior of the world, like the Samaritans did. They're not even honoring him as a prophet who brings God's word. They're just excited to see if he'll do some impressive stuff in their own hometown. They're treating Jesus like a traveling magician. Jesus is right to say he is not truly honored in his own country. But we are now introduced to one of these Galileans, and it is very hard not to feel great sympathy for him. Look at verse 46. Once more Jesus visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. John reminds us, last time Jesus was in Cana of Galilee, he turned water into wine. And no doubt that story had got around. No doubt that story is part of the reason this royal official comes from Capernaum to find Jesus. He probably works for King Herod in some capacity. 
But we all know that having a high position doesn't protect people from tragedy. And this man is on the brink of tragedy. His son is critically ill. He's close to death. And the father is desperate. Verse 47 says he begs Jesus to come and heal his son. Now if we pause it there for a moment, what would we expect to happen next? Wouldn't we expect Jesus to do what the man asks? To go with him to Capernaum and heal the sick boy? The situation is urgent. The father is desperate. He's begging Jesus to do what he asks. So surely, if Jesus is good for anything, surely this is what he's good for. To help people out of their tragic situations. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not sure what to make of Jesus. But I would guess you would still say, if Jesus does have power, of course he should do what the man asks. Why on earth wouldn't he? We'll look now how Jesus does respond to this desperate man who's begging Jesus to help him in his family crisis. Look at verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The you there is plural. So Jesus is talking about the people of Galilee in general. They are not interested in who Jesus really is. They just want a steady diet of signs and wonders. They want displays of power. And we have seen that's true. But it seems so harsh for Jesus to say it to this particular Galilean. This father who is torn up with anxiety and concern for his sick boy. It seems harsh, but in fact, this is the very opposite of harsh. Jesus is not being cold towards this man at all. Jesus speaks to the man this way because he wants to do more for him than just heal his son physically. Jesus is challenging the man, are you going to stay like these other Galileans? These people who won't believe in me unless they see spectacular things. Are you going to stay like that or will you learn to truly believe in me? That's what Jesus is asking. But the man has no time for that. His son's about to die. There's no time to stand and talk about what it means to truly believe. In verse 49, you can hear the torment this man is in. Sir, come down before my child dies. Maybe later, Jesus, after you've come and fixed my problem, then we can have this discussion about truly believing in you. Can't it wait? No, it can't wait. 
This time of all times is the time to learn about true belief in Jesus. If the man will not learn in this situation, he will never learn. He came looking for a display of Jesus' power, and there is no better time for learning to trust Jesus' promises. Twice, the man has begged Jesus to come with him to Capernaum. He wants Jesus where he can see him. So we can make sure Jesus gets it right. But in verse 50, Jesus says to him, Go, your son will live. Do you see the challenge here? Jesus is not going to go with him. He's asking the man to simply take him at his word. To turn and go home. Trusting that Jesus will take care of things. Trusting Jesus' promise. That is true belief in Jesus. Taking him at his word and doing what he says. And can you see how our situation today is the same? Jesus is not standing here where we can see him and touch him. But in the New Testament, we have carefully recorded eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and Jesus' words. We have his promises that he can meet our very deepest needs, that he can forgive our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. That's worth pointing out, Jesus has not promised physical healing for every Christian and their relatives every time. That promise was given specifically to this man in his own situation. But there are promises Jesus has made to every Christian. He has promised that his Holy Spirit will lead us through life. He has promised that even in our greatest distress, he will work for our good. We cannot tug Jesus physically by the sleeve, but we have his promise that nothing can separate us from his love. We have his promise that even in trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, he will make us more than conquerors. And you might ask, Did Jesus really make all those promises? That sounds like something the Apostle Paul said. And it is. But the New Testament tells us the promises of Scripture are the promises of Jesus. The promises of Scripture come to us from Jesus through Paul and the other writers of Scripture. When we read the New Testament... We are hearing from Jesus. And so since we have these promises from Jesus, the challenge Jesus gives this man in Galilee comes to you and me as well. Are we going to be like the other Galileans whose belief is based on seeing immediate, powerful results from Jesus? 
Or are we willing to go forward in life trusting Jesus' word? When we want Jesus to walk through life at our elbow, waving a magic wand, making all our problems melt away, when that is what we want, Jesus calls us to something different. He calls us to go on through life without seeing him at our elbow, but trusting that he is with us and he will keep his promises to us. That's what it means to truly believe in Jesus. It's the kind of belief this man shows. You can see that in the second half of verse 50. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. What a step for him to take. To set off down the road with nothing but Jesus' promise to rely on. Literally, the text says the man believed in Jesus. But it is no longer the kind of belief that needs to be fed constantly on signs and wonders. This is the kind of belief that trusts Jesus even when it can't see him or see some spectacular miracle from him. And we might say, well, yes, okay, but Jesus did do the miracle. That's true. The next verses show that. Jesus proved himself trustworthy. He did what he promised. But the significant point is the man took him at his word and set off before that happened. And that's the point of connection with us. We are called to believe without seeing. Now, we're not called to believe without evidence. The New Testament gives us plenty of evidence. But we are called to believe without seeing. And we are called to obey Jesus' commands without necessarily seeing immediate results from that obedience. That's what this father did. He came to find Jesus in Cana. His home in Capernaum is about 20 miles away. I'm sure that distance was walkable in a day, but it may have been late in the day when the man left Jesus to go back home because he does make an overnight stop on the way home. We know that because verse 52 says, it is the next day when his servants meet him. And they tell him his son got better the day before. At the precise moment, Jesus promised to heal him. And what that means is, before his servants found him, this father had to go through the whole night clinging to Jesus' word without knowing the outcome. This man had a long, dark night with nothing to hold on to but Jesus' promise, your son will live. And for you and me, as we face difficulties and crises, sometimes desperate trauma in our lives, we might have to cling to Jesus' word for a lot longer than just one dark night. 
We might have to cling to his word for years, decades, maybe even a lifetime. We might have to cling to Jesus' word through desperate times when we cannot see evidence of Jesus keeping his promises to make us more than conquerors, to deliver us from evil, to wipe away every tear, to fill us with joy in God's presence. Many Christians have gone through a ton of major darkness before they finally emerged into the good things Jesus promised them. But he did keep his promise. His word did prove trustworthy. It's worth noticing that verse 53 says, when the man learned his son had been healed, he and his household believed. But we saw earlier, the end of verse 50 literally says, the man believed Jesus' word. That was before his son was healed. So what does verse 53 mean when it says he and his household believed after the healing? Well, we've already said Jesus' promise to this man was specific to him. His son would be healed. That was the word of Jesus the father believed in verse 50. But now the father realizes the Jesus who was trustworthy in this one situation can be trusted in every situation. This man begins now a life of believing in Jesus, believing every word of Jesus. He sees Jesus as the trustworthy one, and his whole household do the same. And that's the belief in Jesus you and I are called to. Belief that says more than just because Jesus has shown his trustworthiness in this situation, I'll trust his word in this situation. We are called to belief that says because Jesus has shown his trustworthiness in this situation, I will trust his word in every situation. And in response to that, you might say, yeah, but I'm still waiting to see Jesus' trustworthiness in any situation. Give me something to work with. Well, try working with this. Read the four New Testament Gospels, and you will find that Jesus repeatedly predicted his death and resurrection. More specifically, he predicted he would die by crucifixion and he would be raised after three days. That is what Jesus promised and that is what happened. Work with that. Let his trustworthy word in that show you his word is trustworthy in every other situation. When Jesus says he is coming back to reign on a new heaven and earth, you can trust his word. When he says those who believe in him shall not perish, but have eternal life with him in that new heaven and earth, you can trust his word. 
When he says that in the meantime, he will never leave you or forsake you, you can trust his word. When your life is like a long, dark night, and it looks like morning is never going to come for you, seems like the dark things in your life are never going to lift. When life is like that, you can trust Jesus' word that one day all creation will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And that includes you, if you belong to Jesus. When Christ appears, you shall be like him, for you shall see him as he is. You may not be seeing many displays of Jesus' power right now. You may go your whole life without seeing them. But you have Jesus' word that they are coming. And you will be part of them if you belong to him. So as Christians, yes, we pray for Jesus to act in our situation. It is right that we do that. We bring our urgent prayers and requests to him. But as we do that, let's keep our focus not on searching for impressive displays of his power. Let's focus on his promises. And let's keep going, trusting his promises even when we cannot see his power at work. Our last two songs help us respond to this word from God. They help us respond by agreeing that as God's people, we delight in his promises and we look forward to this day he has promised, the day that all creation is longing for. So let's join together in singing Sovereign Over Us and There Is a Day.
And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.